It is Friday and we made it through another week of quarantine. So everyone deserves to pour themselves something special, their favorite beverage and uh, celebrate the fact that, yeah, we all lasted another week. And so, yeah, we created this travel community to try to recreate all the things we love about travel, but just do it virtually and do it from, do it from home. And one of the things that I miss most is just sitting at a pub chatting with uh, swapping travel stories with friends or finding some random stranger that you meet on the road and chatting travel stories. So I'm super excited for this, this happy hour to chat with my friend Lee Abamante, who was the youngest American to visit every country in the world. And so if you follow Lee, which you absolutely should, consider this just you catching up with an old friend. And if you are new to Lee, pretend he's that guy on the other end of the bar that's telling you tall travel stories that you probably won't believe half of them, but they're actually <laughs> true. So Lee, thanks so much for spending your evening with us. Yeah, man. What's going on? Thanks for having me. Yeah. The, uh, so for those people that are not familiar with your story, I'd love to just start off like how this life of yours got started and you know, what inspired you to visit every country in the world in the first place. Yeah, I, uh, I never traveled as a kid. I did a study abroad year in the late 90s and um, just kind of got hooked on traveling and really just loved it and just did it just for fun. Um, for about eight years or so, I just traveled just to travel and I like to go to new places. So it, somewhere around 2006 or whatever, I'd been to 100, 110 countries literally without really trying just because I like to go to new places. And I would go to like, you know, five, six, seven countries in a trip for a couple weeks and uh, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with a friend of mine, and uh, about two weeks after that, uh, he sends me an email. He's like, yeah, there's this record to be like the youngest guy to go to every country in the world. And I was like, you know what? Uh, why not? I got time. I got money. Let's, uh, let's, let's do it. And uh, that's pretty much what I did. And uh, I mean, I wasn't really in a rush. It, it took me another six years after that almost to, uh, to do it, and I only had about 70 to go. And yeah, man, I just did it. And uh, just, for, just for the love of it, just for the love of travel, man, no other reason. Uh, and I never dreamed I'd, uh, you know, be doing this as a job, you know, some 13 years later. Yeah. No, and that's one of the things I appreciate about uh, your travels is like from usually when someone's a Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records holder for travel, it is a uh, it is a rapid fire type of trip, which, yeah. hey, to, to each its own, like that's it's an experience in itself. But, um, you know, you you took time to go to countries, you revisited many other countries. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've, you know, I've personally been to uh, 100 countries and I kind of had that same realization that you had in 2006 where I, I was like, hey, I'm gonna go to every country in the world just out of curiosity. And I saw your, your record, that's how I first came in, <laughs> first got to know you and uh, saw that you did it. And I was like, ah, well, I can't do it by that age probably or it'd be too rushed. So at least that takes the pressure off and I have, uh, you know, a rest of my, the rest of my life to, to do it. So the, yeah. uh, the, the thing that I, well, I would love for you to tell one story that I think is just fascinating. So most, I have a few friends who've been to every country in the world and they've, uh, their, their last country always falls into two camps. It's either like they saved some beautiful place that's close to mm -hmm. home so they can have like a big party and bring their friends and celebrate. Or it's right. like, you know, it's a Nauru or something that's just so far out there that logistically it never made sense to get to. So they're just like, okay, I got to now trek all the way across the world and take seven flights and two boats. Um, but you have a little bit of a different last story. Uh, you want to, you kind of went out with a bang uh, quite literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, come, 
2011, uh, you know, there's 193 countries in the world, UN member states. Uh, you might hear a different number, but the real number is 193. Um, and I had about four or five left uh, going into 2011. And it was like some really romantic places like uh, Sudan, Djibouti, uh, Algeria, and uh, in Libya. And so I planned this huge trip in March of that year, 2011. Uh, and I was able to go to all of them except uh, Libya because the Arab Spring happened and uh, war broke out. They closed the borders. Uh, Libya became a no-fly zone. So this big trip that I planned to finish every country, uh, you know, I got all of them except for, for Libya. And so maybe like five months goes by in late August of that year, I got an email from a guy I know in uh, Cairo who told me that he thought the eastern border of Libya with the western Egypt would be open and I could get across the border that way and, and go to a town called Tobruk, which uh, is famous for a World War II battle. And I was like, okay, cool. And literally, I got in a plane at Kennedy. I flew to Cairo. I had dinner with my friend. Uh, and then the next morning, I flew out to uh, this place called Mursa Mutra, which no one's ever heard of, but uh, it's about 300 miles from the border. It's the closest airport. And I had about $5,000 in my pocket that I figured I would have to bribe somebody with or something to get a ride uh, and then get across the board. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, my Arabic is like two words. And uh, I see a guy at the uh, airport in Mursa Mutra who was wearing like a sport coat and uh, had a Libyan rebel lapel pin. And he looked, you know, educated and looks like he might speak English. So I go up to him and I was like, you speak English? He goes, yes. And, and I was telling him what I was trying to do. And he goes, uh, and I'd ask him if he could talk to a taxi driver and ask him to drive me to the border. And he goes, no, nah, that's stupid. And I'm like, okay. And uh, he's, he's like, I'm going to do better. My brother is coming from Tobruk, Libya with a minivan, and he's going to drive me across the border to Tobruk, and we will take you for free. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool, man. Thanks a lot. You know, sounds great. Um, so I just jump in the back of a minivan with this uh, random Libyan uh, brothers that I'd never met before. Uh, we drive about three hours to the border. We're in line waiting to get into uh, Libya. And all of a sudden, we're about 30 feet from the border. There's like two cars in front of us. And uh, on the other side of the border, Chinese smugglers are trying to smuggle fake Marlboro cigarettes from Libya into Egypt uh, because they didn't want to pay a tariff. So they brought them into Libya because there was no government. The Libyan rebels who controlled the government, uh, the border at the time wanted them to pay. The Chinese didn't want to pay. There was about 50 of them on top of the truck. They were all heavily armed, and these guys started shooting at each other. And uh, the car I'm in gets hit a few times, and, uh, you know, I'm scared out of my mind. And uh, long story short, we had to basically peel backwards about three-quarters of a mile into the desert, off-road, and uh, we ended up having to wait there for about three hours. And <laughs> anyway, we get back. Um, Finally, the guy's like, all right, I think we can cross now. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, there's like dead people, you know, on the other side of the border. Okay, sure. So we get back in line. Uh, and then he goes to me, give me your passport. I'm like, okay. So he goes to me, here's the deal, man. And I'm like, all right, uh, you're going to be a humanitarian dentist going into Libya to do dental work. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not a dentist. He goes, doesn't matter. He goes, you have straight white teeth and nobody in Libya has straight white teeth. So just say it and they'll believe you. Okay. Yeah, whatever you say. Uh, we get to the border. He gives the guy my passport. Uh, he says some words in Arabic to him. The guy kind of sticks his head in, and he, he just goes, and I'm like, <laughs> and then he goes to me, welcome to Libya in English. And uh, yeah, like I always said, I went out with a bang uh, getting into Libya, and then I just had an amazing experience in there. That's amazing. I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, you can do this in a lot of places in the world, but like Egypt is a place that you know, I lived there for 
on and off for two years. And uh, it's one of the only places that like you can truly get anything done if you're willing to like give a little bit of money or just be friendly, like you yeah, yeah. <laughs> like anything. Well, that's, that's a incredible story. Um, so I think that's a good segue to one question. Like, yeah, I wanted to ask you is so a lot of my travel tends to be last minute. I'm not really good at planning months in advance and I really hate the bureaucracies of embassies. And I think people are very like can comprehend quite easily the, how much, you know, maybe the time, the cost, or the fear you have to deal with to try to get to every country in the world. But the thing that always strikes me as the most impressive is just the logistical achievement of it all. Um, so, you know, with with the exception of like India or Russia, like I, I almost always avoid the countries that require like visas, meaning, meaningful visas in advance that I can't just get yeah. or mail it in. So, how what were some of the hard, like to to go to every country in the world? What were some of the hardest countries to get visas for, and how did you manage to do that? Well, it's a little bit different now than it was when I did it. And uh, um, I have a friend, uh, this guy, Drew Binsky, who's trying to go to every country in the world. And him and I talk about this often, how the, the hardest visas in the world for me, which at the time were Angola and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, are now really not that hard to get anymore. Um, Angola's visa on arrival, India's visa on arrival, too. That one used to be a pain in the butt. Um, Saudi Arabia, now you can just get it. It's easy. And... Um, uh, Pakistan, you still need a sponsor, but it's a lot easier to get than at once was because now you can have tour companies do it, whereas yeah. you used to have to have an individual uh, who had to basically vouch for you and send in his passport until you left the country. It was very strange. Anyway, um, the it wasn't they were a pain in the butt. You could figure it out though, but it definitely took effort. Man, it would take forever to fill out the applications. I spent a fortune applying, doing the expedite fee, uh, paying for FedExes, and then obviously the uh, the fee for the services that actually get you the uh, the uh, the visas. And especially in places like West Africa, where you need a visa to go to every country, you know, you'd have to get you know fifteen, twenty at one time. So it was a real hassle and a real expense. Uh, you know, I probably spent somewhere in the uh, range of thirty thousand dollars just on visas uh, over the years, and and most of them were just for expediting fees, you know, because they pretend that like it takes three weeks to do these visas because they want you to pay more money to, to get them faster. So, but what are you going to do? I mean, I don't want to get stuck at a border between Benin and Togo and have to sit there for weeks, you know, in limbo. So you got to get them in advance when you go to places like that. Um, a lot of places are visa on arrival, but a lot of places are not. Uh, and it's a little bit different now. Um, other places are more challenging. North Korea is a lot harder than it used to be. Yemen, Syria, those are a lot harder than they used to be. So, you know, it just goes, it's cyclical, basically. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate to have two passports. I have EU and US. And I remember when I was traveling up, you know, by road and by crossing <laughs> land borders into Africa, it was always like, okay, they don't allow visa on arrival for Americans, but they do for Polish. And so I would like switch yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was always confusing them. They're like, how, how are you entering this country without having exited yeah. that country? Yeah. Um, the, so... I'm sure you have a lot of people reaching out to you um, with advice on this, but like as someone like, you know, I'm over halfway there and I want to go to every country in the world. What advice would you give to someone who sees what you do and says, Hey, I, I want to do the same. Well, uh, one save money. Uh, anyone who says travel is cheap is lying. Um, especially if you're trying to do the every country thing, because there's, there's countries that are expensive and it's unavoidable. Things like visa fees, uh, number one, um, transportation costs, um, and then things you don't really think of and like, especially in like Africa, Central West Africa, if you're, t you're taking a lot of cars or buses or minivan, minibuses or whatever, things break down and 
you know, you're the one who's required to pay for things. And, uh, you know, you have to have money in reserve. Um, so save your money, uh, group things together, like especially like I keep saying in Africa or the South Pacific, you know, do clusters of places because it's a lot easier to do a bunch at one time than continually going back to, you know, East, West, Central Africa or flying down to go to Nauru and you didn't go to the Solomon Islands on the same trip, you know, try to combine a bunch of places to save a lot of money and, and time and hassle. Um, and, and just do the research and the logistics because that's the biggest issue um, you know, not every country has flights every day into every airport and, uh, you know, you might have to go in on Tuesday, leave on a Thursday. Cause if you go on a Thursday, you'll have to stay till the following Tuesday. So it really depends on where you're going and how much time you want to spend in a place because, you know, we all like to say that there's something wonderful about every place, but some places you don't want to spend a weekend if you could only spend, uh, two days there, you know what I mean? Uh, they would say, uh, stranded on a, a deserted island would be great until you're actually stranded on a deserted island. You know? <laughs> right. Um, so what about the complete opposite? Uh, what advice do you normally give to someone who's new to travel but sees your story and is really interested in just you know, starting to make travel much more part of their life? Sure. Um, f first of all, the, the first time I ever left America was to study abroad. And for anyone who's watching this who's young, I couldn't recommend anything more than study abroad. It was the best thing I ever did without question. And it just changed my whole life, my whole attitude, my whole outlook, the whole, the whole thing. I mean, it just brought things to life for me. But what I always recommend to people is go somewhere where you feel comfortable at first. So I went to London, which was really comfortable for me because it was Europe, but they spoke English and it was weird because they drive on the other side of the street. They talk funny. They do things a little bit different, but I never felt uncomfortable because I could always communicate. And then uh, kind of ease your way in uh, to Europe or something like that. And then I went to France and Spain, you know, where I had a little bit of background from like middle school and the language and that type of thing. And um, Europe is a good place to kind of get your big toe wet uh, before you start jumping into Asia, Africa, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. I always tell people that it's how important it is to push your comfort zone, but your comfort yeah. zone and my comfort zone is very different. You know, to, <laughs> like for some people just getting on a plane and going to New York City. Yeah, be a great step. And then London. Yeah. So 100, 100%. Um, so I'm sure I'm sure you get this question a ton. And one of the questions I hate the most that I get asked is like, what is your favorite country? Because it's impossible <laughs> to I, and I think it's a really bad question. But I always try to like, realize the root of that question, like they're really asking because they want ideas for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so like, I always try to spin it to, okay, I'm not going to answer my favorite country but I'll tell you what I think are the most underrated because that's really what the question is getting at. Like everyone knows Argentina, France, Vietnam, like everyone knows those places are fantastic. Um, but the underrated ones I think is where it gets interesting. Like what do you think is the most, uh, the most underrated country or countries? Yeah, I would say um, probably for me, the three most underrated countries in the world are certainly overlooked are Namibia in uh, Southern Africa. I think um, it's one of the more beautiful places in the world. Uh, I, I love it there. Like, so good there's so much to see and do and a lot of the stuff you see on like tv and instagram and, and guidebooks are actually in namibia you just didn't know it um the same goes for ethiopia ethiopia has so much so much to see so much to do so much history um so much like uh lost art kind of stuff you know like really ancient biblical kind of things and uh bolivia in south america i think is just uh, phenomenal and nobody knows anything about it and it's surrounded by giants like Brazil and Argentina and 
Peru and Ecuador and Chile and everybody wants to go to all these places, but Bolivia itself, right in the heart of the Andes, um, is really just a tremendous place, especially the, uh, the salt flats down in the uh, Southern Altiplano. Yeah, no, those are good answers. Uh, I haven't been to Bolivia, but I've been to Namibia and Ethiopia is always, always high on my list on the underrated answer. I always say, uh, Ethiopia and, uh, Georgia. Georgia is a great one. And I just thought of another one, uh, Lebanon. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. If people don't know Lebanon, they have some of the best food in the world. And it's just, it's, it's like a Mediterranean country, but in the Middle East. So people don't really know anything about it because they're kind of scared or, you know, they heard something bad happened in Beirut in 1983, you know what I mean? But it's, it's a beautiful place and it's a great city. Most people's perception of a place is what they saw in the news 10 years ago. Because you, totally. don't, you, you don't see anything on the news if everything's going normal. Like, yes. it's, yeah. it's always when there's a war or there's some, you know, big crisis. And then right, right. You know, the amount of people, like, you know, who saw the Arab Spring, you know, in 2011 and then <laughs> 10 years later or eight years later think uh, it's, it, it's still in some sort of, like, crazy revolution. Um, yeah, yeah, you never hear, like, oh, some guy had a great day laying out in the beach in Diani Beach, Kenya today. Right. You know what I mean? That's never yeah. headline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Be- Lebanon is great. Beirut, I think, is one of the, one of the most fun cities and by yep. far the best food. So that's a perfect segue uh, to one of my favorite questions. And I'm curious um, to ask you, because unlike most people, you've actually been to every place, so you can probably give a better judge, uh, be a better judge for this. But if you could go to any, if you had a budget of $5, $50, and $500, and you could teleport to any place for dinner, so you pick one, one city for each of those three price ranges, where would you go for five, fifty, and five hundred? Uh, for five, for sure. Um, uh, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, even Singapore. You can you can eat for that price at uh, some of the street markets and street uh, stalls, food carts, that kind of thing. Uh, for me personally, Bangkok, uh, Chiang Mai, they have some great street food, super cheap. I mean, you can have a ridiculous meal for one dollar, let alone five dollars, and. Uh, that's still kind of the last bastion of really cheap, good value in the world, which is why so many people love it there. And which is why a lot of kind of, you know, freelance type people actually live there. Um, for $50, you move up into things like, um, you know, you can go into like Europe or something like that. I mean, you can get a really nice meal in uh, Italy or, or France or yeah. I mean, and, and those are probably two of my favorite places to, to eat. So, I mean, I'd probably say that. And then 500, I mean, we're talking like fine dining restaurants, really. And I think the best fine dining and, and really fancy restaurants would be like Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, New York, Moscow, those types yeah. of places with some of the best restaurants in the world. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think the $5 question and the $500 question is the easiest to answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of that. And like the 51 is is hard because I mean, whether it's, you know, and also like we just talked about Beirut or Mexico City or Athens. Yeah, it's, uh, we had. This is like anywhere in the world, really. You know, yeah. it's decent restaurant, good food. Yeah, we had, uh, we had Andrew Zimmern uh, on an event yesterday and he had Hanoi for $5, which is always my answer. Uh, Paris for 500 which is also my answer. But I was, I was surprised by his, uh, his $50 answer was Queens. So you being a New Yorker, I, uh. Yeah, Queens has, uh, for people who don't know, Queens has more um, cultures represented than any other city in the world. There's something like 300 different, you know, nationalities more or less represented there. It's crazy. And they have some of the best uh, of everything, really. And it's not necessarily fancy or, or even $50, but man, they got uh, they got a little bit of everything in Queens. Um, yeah. 
in terms of food, I'm more of a Brooklyn guy. Well, I'm a Manhattan guy, but I would rather go to Brooklyn than Queens. But it's personal preference, and uh, it's a lot of Asian heavy in uh, in Queens. And I'm I like Asian food, but it's not my favorite. Yeah. No. I so one thing that I, I often recommend to people is to I, I think it's a really interesting experience when you travel to explore your own passions, but through different cultures. So, like for example, I I make it a habit whenever possible. Whenever I go to a place, like I find the startup community, uh, the tech community, you know, the, if there are venture capitalists in that place. And I almost always like get plugged in and like meet everyone. Right. And, like it just shows you a unique perspective. Cause you know so much about that world, but not from their perspective. Yeah, yeah. You've done that with sports. Um, and I thought that was really interesting and someone who, you know, I've loved playing sports my whole life, but I'm not a big sports fan. I've, I've really enjoyed your travels like how you've explored the world through different sporting events. Um, so how, how has sports influenced your travels and your experiences? Well, yeah, thanks. Um, sports is my number one passion in my life. Uh, always has been. Um, I, um, I probably know more about sports than anyone you've ever met and ever will meet. And uh, in terms of uh, knowledge, trivia, um, passion, and um, in a variety of sports, global sports, not just – Baseball, basketball, football, I mean, you know, tennis, golf, soccer, uh, hurling, Aussie rules, football. I follow everything. The only sport I don't like is cricket. No offense to – I'm sure some people love cricket and they're going to lose their minds. But um, it's the one sport I can't get into. Uh, rugby is another one I love. Um, and a lot of my travels, especially post every country, uh, has revolved around sporting events. And, and really, it still does. And I'm super into golf. And uh, I, I do a lot of golf travel now, too. I've kind of incorporated that in my business. And uh, – yeah, food and sports, a lot of my travels revolve around those two things. Yeah, it's always funny to watch you debate like tennis with someone on one day and then you know, yeah. some, some obscure sport I've never even heard about the, the, the next day. Um, yeah. So I got this question. When, when we announced your event, uh, I got this question a lot from our community. So obviously you'll never run out of places to travel. Like you could travel indefinitely and barely scratch yeah. the surface. Um, but are there any... And, and, and I know that you're someone that goes back to the same places over and over again. Like, but is there any place that is just like really high on your list that you haven't been to that's still, still a goal of yours? Yeah, well, so when I, I've done every country, right? The 193, but there's other lists that list places that are 329. So it's countries and territories, unique destinations, which it's a much more comprehensive list of places in the world. So that includes like disputed territories, uh, island groups, um, uh, places like Puerto Rico, for instance, would count separately than just going to America. Yeah, the Traveler Century Clubs, I see somebody uh, wrote that down there, 329 destinations. I've done 323 of the 329. They keep adding new ones over the years, and I've kind of stopped trying, to be honest. But originally, when I did every country, I wasn't even trying to do every country. I was trying to go to every TCC destination. Um, so just along the way, I just went to every country. And if I'd known it was going to be a big deal, I would have done it a lot earlier. I, I had no idea. Um, so there's, I'd like to go to the remaining six um, of those places. But some of them I don't really care about. I would go just to kind of go. But in terms of places I do care about, I'd really like to go to South Georgia um, in the South Sandwich Islands. So that's uh, huge penguin colonies, um, British Antarctic territories. Uh, you have to take a ship there from Ushuaia or Punta Arenas, and it's yeah, it's about a thousand miles from the Falkland Islands, and uh, a lot of ships uh, that do a two and a half to three week 
uh, trip to Antarctica. We'll, we'll actually stop there. And for, for reference, that's actually where Ernest Shackleton is buried. Um, and they have the most penguins of any place in the world. They have something like 2 million penguins on South Georgia Island, which is pretty wild. That's crazy. So we talked about uh, earlier on this call about getting out of your comfort zone, however that is, uh, for whatever that means to you. And then you and I were talking before we, we went live about, you know, right now, like I, I could drop you anywhere in the world, like Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, any place that is considered a hotbed, and you'd be right in your comfort zone. But if I said, hey, Lee, stay in your apartment and you're not going to JFK for the next, you know, three months, four months, year, who knows, um, and you're staying at home, I feel like that's very far outside your comfort zone. So I'm curious, like, what are you doing to satisfy your love of travel and how are you traveling from home? Well, I'm doing a lot of different things that I, I listen, when you're forced to do certain things, you, you, you adapt, you know? So, I mean, I'm, I'm keeping busy, surprisingly. I thought I'd be losing my mind and I, and I am at times, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work things. I'm trying different things because we don't know what's going to happen when, when this is all over in terms of the travel industry and like how it's going to be work-wise, this and that. So I'm trying to do a bunch of different things. So I'm hosting Instagram Lives every day, usually at 2 o'clock with different types of people uh, across different verticals. And because uh, I'm just trying to basically diversify and also uh, show that I like other things besides travel. That's the other thing. I, I have a lot of interests that are buried and... Um, so just exploring different things. I just started writing my, uh, my book and, um, yeah, I'm taking a lot of walks, a lot of long walks, uh, doing a lot of exercise, uh, keeping in shape. I'm, I'm big into, uh, fitness and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, really that's it, man. Watching TV, um, doing the best I can, man. You know, uh, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Sometimes you bitch about it, but, uh, what are you going to do? You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, are you able to share yet? Like, some of the details on the book. Yeah, it's going to be some of your travels, uh, but yeah, well, it's going to be obviously travel centric, but it's going to be a collection of stories. Like, uh, you know, the Libya one will definitely be in there a little bit more detailed. Um, and you know, I have a lot of funny, funny freaking stories. You know what I mean? Like things right. that people don't really think about. Um, you know, the things that we don't really say out loud, like, like bathroom situations and in, in certain places and like, you know, horrifying experiences and, you know, just embarrassing moments, like that types of thing, just different things. We, everyone talks about the, the beautiful things, you know, I put on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that, but there's a lot that goes into travel, the real stuff. And uh, it's going to be a little bit about that. And um, it's going to be different stories. So people get kind of the whole um, pantheon of, of experiences, not just the, uh, the glory, you know? Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> it always cracks me up because, you know, you, you always want that perfect travel experience. But whenever you ask someone's best travel stories uh at least half of them evolve you know something erupting out of either end of their body <laughs> so the uh so anyways uh that's what you said about the travel industry changing is something i would love to get your perspective on so travel has changed a lot since mm -hmm. you started traveling and there's a lot that's been great like it's certainly more accessible to more people but there's that has also led to a lot of bad so you have yeah, over tourism, flash tourism. There's a ton of trends that right now are pretty problematic. And the travel industry and travelers like have never had this worldwide opportunity to just hit the pause button and reset like, mm -hmm. like they do now. And so what, what, is, what are your hopes and what is your advice that like when, when we do get back to traveling again, what should we be doing differently 
just as an industry or as a community of travelers to both a get more out of our own experience and b preserve travel for for generations to come well there's a couple ways to go with this uh number one we don't really know exactly how long we're going to be here and what it's going to look like when it on the other side. Um, I think it's going to be, not to be pessimistic, I think it's going to be a while till things are back to normal, um, especially in America and with international travel. Like, there's no date. You know what I mean? You keep hearing, oh, when, 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 May 15th, May, June 1st, like, whatever. We don't know that. You know what I mean? And even if that's the day where they reopen things or like whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to just go to a stadium or jump on a plane or go on a cruise ship, you know? So with that in mind, you have to keep things into perspective. And if anything has come of this, in my opinion, it's kind of put things into perspective of what's important and what's not. And it uh, gives you time to kind of, like you said, regroup. And it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with the industry when this comes back, because everyone's losing money. There's nobody on earth who's not losing money right now. And, um, you know, so budgets are going to be slashed. It's going to be interesting to see. I think airlines, um, even if they get bailout money, are going to have to give really cheap deals. So people are going to be able to uh, go places at, at cheaper, be incentivized to go places, cruises, same thing. Hotels, you know, they're all going to want your business back. And the people that are going to travel are going to travel regardless. It's uh, kind of the leisure people that are, it's going to be interesting to see how they do it. Um, are they going to go to, you know, the all-inclusive in Cancun and be around like a ton of people? Uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. I, I think it all comes down to testing and a vaccine and, uh, and we'll see where we go. Uh, but at the same time, I think this has given a lot of people the opportunity to kind of reflect on the traveling that they've done and the things that they would like to do and, and kind of puts things more in focus and, uh, everyone has an idea, right. Of what they're going to do when, when this is over. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be perfect just like that. So people are going to have to be more resourceful and more, more kind of old school and less uh, Instagram, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's certainly going to come in waves, you know, it's uh, like, they're just like anything. Like I think people are going to, people are desperate to get out of their house. So as soon as it's yeah. safe, like I think the first thing that's going to just start booming are like road trips and national parks and people yeah, seeking experiences that are or maybe like second tier, third tier type cities. Like I think it's going to be a long time before someone goes to a sporting event or a concert yeah. or are willing to hop on a plane and fly to fly to Tokyo. Um, but it certainly will, but people, the desire to travel won't, uh, won't go down. And, and, and it's also going to be really interesting because like so much of the airline industry and, uh, and, and the hotel industry is their profits for from business travel. And I actually think, I actually think business travel is going to get hit the hardest. You know, Crushed. we talk to, we yeah. talk to like, you know, our investors all the time and like getting their perspective. And they're one of the things that they like, there's some business travel that will be unavoidable, but mm -hmm. I think there's two things. One, people are going to be more hesitant. So, you know, maybe they go every other board meeting in person and the rest are on zoom or every few. Um, maybe those like they'll do their first client meeting in person and the rest will be over zoom. And so I don't think it'll stop, but it'll be, it'll certainly be less. And I think the other, the second driver of that is I think for the, the world, like we have a fully remote company, so we've always known all the tools out there, but like the rest of the world all of a sudden realize zoom works pretty damn well and are willing to like hop on a zoom call. And they're like, wow, I can also be pretty, pretty productive in this environment. So I think business travel gets crushed. And so I'm curious how, like, even when, the leisure traveler starts like easing into it. And obviously 
I'm sure once it's safe and we're not a risk to other people, people like you and I will be probably on the earlier end of being willing to go somewhere. But then some people, you know, it might take them many, many more months before they're comfortable. But the leisure traveler is going to make up most of the most of the revenue. And so I'm very curious to see how how the industry responds to that. Yeah, I, to I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, and I also think this is finally going to make airlines lower business class fares for like normal people because yeah, some business classes or business trips is going to be unavoidable. And there's something to, uh, to be said about face to face meetings and personal relationships. But I mean, you know, uh, you're in Chicago, I'm in New York. I feel like I'm sitting right with you right now. 100%, you know I mean? yeah. And granted, we've met before, but at the same time, like when I Zoom with uh, my friends or with people who I don't know, I still feel like I'm in the room with them. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I'm totally focused and, and the whole thing. And, and the technology is pretty good. Uh, airlines have been getting away with murder for years, like screwing regular people and business people, but they don't care because they're not paying. And uh, I, I think they're going to finally come back down to earth because they're going to have trouble getting people to pay $10,000 to fly out to Europe. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. And uh, hopefully it just keeps things uh, normal and or get back to how it once was, I guess. Yeah. So one of the things that I've appreciated about your travel is like, I mean, you built an, you built an entire career on, you know, being a travel influencer for lack of a better word, but you're not your typical like social media influencer you know like you you give a very honest assessment you have very intelligent thoughts you you cover every place in the world you're on tv all the time but like you know you're not doing you know beautiful like you know have a hiring photographers to take glamour shots of you uh or you know like i i, <laughs> I love your series that you're doing right now where you're basically covering like every region of the world yeah and you're like call you, you you know you didn't like you didn't know what instagram highlights were like you're like those little picture thingies <laughs> um, so i'm curious like what advice you have for people that are are looking to make a career out of their travel and i think when people see that when people think about that they they think of the like typical instagram influencer with all the negative connotations around that and they and they kind of have this perception and this mold that they then try to follow but you're someone who's built a you know an entire career in finance a ton of travel without kind of, uh, you know, doing that uh, cheesy, cheesy path. Well, I mean, thank you. And I appreciate you noticing uh, a couple things. One, I'm a grown ass man. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I've, I've had real jobs before. I'm not like a 21 year old kid who has never worked and just wants someone to pay him to, you know, t or girl, you know, take pictures on the beach in a, in a bathing suit or climbing a mountain or, you know, whatever, um, you know, get sponsored by a hostel. That's not my goal. Um, but what I've learned over the years and I tell everyone who would listen, but they don't necessarily listen is just be real, just be uh, yourself. And it's okay to, you know, say shit and fuck and stuff like that. Cause that's what real people do. And people respect uh, that and they respect that they can relate to everyone tells me they feel like they can relate to me because I'm just a regular guy, which is exactly true. I mean, I'm just a normal dude who's done some cool shit, you know? And, um, and that's my, online persona but that's also how i am in real life and uh and and that's really it i think people can see through the bullshit like you know not not to pick on anybody but like if, if you you know some people just post these ridiculous photos uh that are just so edited and and, and pre-planned and stuff like that and they're just 
almost embarrassing to look at. And then they put some like ridiculous inspirational quote and you're just like, come on, that's such bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I don't know, it drives me crazy. So you just try to be real, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, by the way, uh, I do think you should change your Instagram bio then to, I'm just a normal du- dude who's done some cool shit. That's, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, yeah, the, uh, I mean, it, having seen it on both ends, you know, and I've been on like, you know, the receiving end of being paid to do stuff as well as like, we've paid people to do stuff like it. Um, it's something I've been fascinated by and like, actually like seeing beautiful photos on your Instagram feed, like makes you want to do that kind of same stuff. But like the thing that like you have to realize and that I see all the time is that all of these photos that look so beautiful, like the person usually gets up at like 4am to take a picture before anyone's there. They usually go on some epic hike wearing like white tennis shoes and like a fan, you know, fancy suit or dress or like fancy, you know, clothes. Like it's not a real experience and they're also usually not having real travel experiences they're going just having photo shoots around the world well that's that's the thing right and it's like listen i don't i don't i don't mean to poke fun at anybody and like i know how hard some of these people work guys and girls it's not you know it's both and there's an audience for everything you know what i mean and some people the audiences they just want to get cool photos and that's totally cool you know i mean it's not for me i i enjoy taking photos like if you look at my my instagram or facebook i have a lot of nice photos i like taking pictures but it's uh, pictures of stuff. Generally, if I'm in it, it's just me looking at the camera smiling or something. You know what I mean? Or, I mean, that's it. Like, I don't, <laughs> I always joke with people, like, they take pictures and they're, like, looking up, like, you know, pretending look, like they don't know the picture's being taken. I'm always like, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know the picture's being taken, clearly, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I also love, yeah, when you see someone looking away naturally and it's, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do it for, like, 30 minutes and take 30 different shots, yeah. But anyways, the, uh, so we're going to open this up uh, – for Q and A, um, I see a lot of questions being posted, so I'm really excited to. to How do I see? Can Can I see that, or are you going to read them? Uh, Andy, Andy will read them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. I, uh, I I've been going through them, and there. I do have I do have one last question before we get yeah, to today. Um, so like just to get a little bit more meta and philosophical, like you've you've been every country in the world, you've seen tons of cultures, you've met tons of people, like. What are the biggest life lessons you took away from your travels? And like, how has it impacted your worldview? That's a good question, man. And um, I, I like answering this question because it's, it, it's so apparent when you do stuff like this that, uh, the, for me, the biggest lessons you, you realize are people are not necessarily representative of the governments or vice versa. The governments don't necessarily represent people. Like places like Libya, Iran, you know, places like that where I've been some of the nicest people in the world. And based upon if you watch like the news, you might think they're like the worst people in the world, even even like Russia. I mean, some of the people are super nice there. Um, Yemen, I was treated so well, you know what I mean? And they've been at war like for like, you know, 15 years now. So it's uh, it's one of those types of things. And people around the world are just basically the same. You might look different, sound different, eat different things like whatever. But everyone has the love of their friends, their family, sports, uh, you know, beer, you know, wine, that type of thing. They just like to do the same things. They might just do a little bit differently than you and they might look or sound different than you, but it's all the same stuff. And deep down at our core, we're all basically the same. That's amazing. So Andy, I, I think this is probably the right first question based on what you just said, but a lot of people, um, voiced a lot of curiosity about North Korea. And you yeah. know, with, with so much, you know, sort of mystery around, you know, as they call it, the, the hermit kingdom, like, 
what, what did you experience there? And, you know, so much of, of travel is forming sort of meaningful connection. Like, did you feel like you were able to, to build connection while you were there? If the question is, what's the most interesting country in the world, it's North Korea and it's not even close. And when I say most interesting, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like you're going to museums and seeing like uh, amazing things and you're like, oh, wow, this is really cool. It's interesting to see how the people live. It's interesting to see what, how to see what they want you to see and to see through the bullshit of the whole thing about North Korea and uh, the whole propaganda machine that they give to you when you go there. But then it's just fascinating to listen to the stories that they tell you. And I'll give you a quick one, for instance. And they really said this to me. I'm there and I'm a big golfer. So I was asking about uh, golf in North Korea. I was like, is there a golf course? They're like, oh, yeah. I went in 2008, right, when um, Kim Jong-il or whatever his name, the father was still the, the president there, the premier, whatever you call him. And uh, they go, oh, he's a really good golfer. I was like, oh, really? You know, like, what's his handicap? And they're like, uh, she didn't understand what a handicap was. And she goes, oh, he, he shot 18. And I was like, oh, he played 18 holes? And they're like, no, 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 no. He shot 18, meaning like 18 holes in ones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like on a round of golf. I'm like, I just had my first hole in one like a couple months ago. You know what I mean? And like this guy had 18 holes in one, including par fives. I, I don't think so. So, but, but she really believed it because it, it was said about him, you know? Whenever I golf, I always report my score as a perfect Kim Jong 18. Is this yeah. what you call it? I'm like, what do you do? I go, pretty much tied with the best golfer in the entire world. Yeah, um, yeah. Kim Jong Il, best golfer ever. <laughs> best, best golfer ever. Um, you heard it here first. Uh, so here, uh, I'm going to combine two questions. Um, where, where's in the world have you found it easiest to stretch your money? Um, and where in the world did it pull it all out of your pocket? Oh, man, I, you know, as I was saying earlier, uh, Southeast Asia is still the, the cheapest place in the world. There's, there's no getting around it. Um, I think after that, places like Argentina, uh, you can do pretty well uh, stretching the dollar as long as you, you know, you don't stay luxuriously, but you can still stay in decent for cheap. But the food down there is cheap. Uh, transportation's cheap. And, and really, it depends how you like to travel and what your kind of threshold of pain is, you know, and uh if you're, if you're taking the chicken buses around South America, you know, you can make your money go a long way, just like in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, Europe, Europe, America, uh, Asia, places like, uh, you know, South Korea, Japan, those types of places can get really expensive. Um, Russia is very expensive, uh, especially Moscow. Um, major cities, very expensive. And places in Africa are shockingly really ex uh, expensive. Places like Nigeria or Angola or Equatorial Guinea, you know, some of those uh, oil-rich kind of corrupt countries on, on, in that part of Africa, um, you'd be shocked how expensive they are. There are so many places that have uh, either it's so hard to get stuff there or the only people that would ever go there are diplomats and oil tycoons or rich business That's people. It. Yeah, it's, there are places in Africa or like Andy and I uh, a couple years ago were traveling through Papua New Guinea together mm -hmm. and we're just amazed how like, if you, you know, we were staying, you know, we were just taking a little boat down the Sepik River and staying at little communities and huts. But like, we looked at a hotel in Port Moresby and it was like $500 a night is like the cheapest hotel. Yeah, the Ramada, right? And yeah. like the Ramada there is like $500 and it's a dump. And Port Moresby is one of the worst capital cities in the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you just like you, you look at places and you see that their median income is $400 a year. Yeah. And you're shocked to see that the cheapest hotel room is more than that. Yeah. When I was uh, when I was in the sixth grade, I had to do a class project on Equatorial Guinea, and for that reason, has always piqued my fascination. And the thing I know about it is every time I look, 
it is so insanely expensive to get there or do anything there. Probably, I'm probably going to wait on Equatorial Guinea. You know, uh, going back to the other question, the most interesting country, the second or third probably, or uh, Equatorial Guinea and Turkmenistan, I, I think, are second and third in that list because the level of corruption in Equatorial Guinea is just shocking. And it's so nice there. Everything there is like brand new, opulent, like majestic. Uh, that, that was the one where the president's kid bought like a $300 million yacht. <laughs> it was like, what? You know, and his salary with the government's like $40,000. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, guys. So it's funny. Yeah. Uh, so here, here's an interesting question. I think this is good for people that are, you know, constantly traveling everywhere. The question is, is where would you retire? But I would almost kind of morph that a little bit to like, if you were going to really be rooted somewhere, uh, given that you've seen pretty much everywhere, except for the last six people on the, the TCC list, um, where would you pick? You know, uh, I mean, if I'm retiring to be like active or like whatever, and it wasn't so goddamn far, Australia, New Zealand, I mean, to me, are just South Africa is another one. Love those places. But um, realistically, uh, probably Mexico or uh, Costa Rica, something like that. That's easy to get to warm, chill. You can get some real value for your money. And uh, I love the food. <laughs> so uh, a question that I think is really interesting. Uh, we'll have another one preceded. So somebody asked, uh, when do we get to expect this book? Which you know, maybe is not the best question for somebody who's writing a book. But uh, when, uh, when, when might we be able to expect that on our shelves? Uh, not sure, man. I, I literally just started this week. So um, both. But soon, hopefully. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, now I got some time. So it's just, you know, it's funny. I have all this time now, but then it's still hard to find time to, like, do the things you want to do because you're so busy doing, like, nothing. And you can't even remember what you did. It's, like, the weirdest thing. So uh, soon, hopefully within the next year. Okay. So, so you'll be – the more the more you're going to write a book, just from what I've heard from my writer friends, the more busy you'll be. <laughs> you'll find anything to do to, to not write. You'll be like, oh, my gosh, I can't write with, you know – dirt on my shoes let me go clean yeah, yeah. On my shoes. Yeah. <laughs> i gotta rearrange my sock drawer right yeah <laughs> so the the question that was going to follow that one is you know you you told the libya story um you know i think when most people think about libya like you know danger is probably one of the first things that you know comes to their mind given you know yeah. the decades of their political situation is there anybody that you've been that surprised you by how dangerous it was or how you felt once you were there um that's a good question um you know, I never really felt, uh, even when I got shot at, I, I mean, I felt like nervous, but I, I never felt like it wasn't like they were coming after me specifically. Uh, the only place in my life where I've ever felt that I was really targeted and I felt um, kind of vulnerable, like for my safety was in Nigeria. And I say that, uh, and no offense to any Nigerians, if there's any are watching, um, but the, the culture of corruption, especially amongst the police there, is uh, is tough. And three times in two days, I was in Lagos, Nigeria, and cops, Nigerian police, came up to me and my friends and basically threatened to arrest us if uh, we didn't essentially pay a bribe to them. So you know, what are you gonna do? I don't want to. You don't want to go to to jail. You know what I mean? In Nigeria, so you got to give them a little bit of money. So, and the way it seemed, it was, it was just all too normal for them, and uh, that was just frustrating but you feel vulnerable because obviously you don't want to go to Nigerian prison. You just want to get the hell out of there. So um, that's the only time I've ever had that happen to me. And the only time I'd say I felt a little bit uncomfortable. And that was the reason why. Okay. So if you don't want to go to Nigerian prison, let's flip the question. What country's <laughs> prison do you want to go to? Uh, I'll probably say none. 
okay. I think a Scandinavian prison would probably be better than any of our qualities of life. Yeah. Very focused yeah. on rehabilitation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think one of the big questions on this that's always super interesting is like, how do, how do you pack? Like, w- walk me through the Lee Abamante. You know, if I were to unpack your bag, first off, what is that bag? Uh, and second off, what's inside of it that are like your your true essentials? Yeah, you'd be shocked about how little I bring. Uh, I always I always joke, but I'm totally serious. Bring half the clothes and twice the money, uh, because you never wear all the things you think you're gonna do, and you can rewear stuff, and you always spend more money and think you're going to. Um, I use two different bags. I have an Osprey Meridian, or I have a uh, Travel Pro, um, like the same ones that they use. Uh, you know, uh, flight attendants and, and captains use. Um, and I think they're great because you can carry them on anywhere in the world. I hate checking bags. The only time I check bags is either golf clubs or if I'm going on an expedition to Antarctica or something like that. Um, yeah, I bring like a handful of T-shirts, um, depending on where I'm going. I bring a pair of jeans. Uh, usually I just bring sneakers. I rarely bring a second pair of shoes unless I have to have a nice pair of shoes for something. I bring a couple of polos, socks, and really that's it, man. Toiletries, that's, that's literally it. I would like to enter uh, to just jump in that uh, Yinka O in the chat said, "Ouch, I'm Nigerian, but no hate though. I can understand." <laughs> and, and also, she followed on that, but uh, your Nigerian experience was still good. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, well, that was the experience, really. That's that's the take home of the experience. But uh, it's not like I wouldn't go back because I totally want to go back and have a better experience. But the fact is, that's what happened. And sometimes I tell the story. And if Nigerian people hear it, they get all upset. But that's what happened. It's no hate on people or the country or, like, whatever. That's just the experience. Sometimes, like, if you say anything bad about a particular country, uh, people take offense to it. But it's not meant to offend. It's just how my experience was. That's all. Yeah, and also, like, I think the the thing that's so powerful from – I think this is a mindset, and I think, you know, people like you who have had so many adventures have – tend to have this in in higher degrees where – you kind of appreciate, um, you kind of appreciate those experiences. So even though it's not a good, it's not a positive experience, you're just like, I now know more about the world and more about myself and it's more interesting and cool. This is how that happened. And this has developed, like, this is how that is. Like, now I know what it's like to be like stood up by a cop. Cool. Let's keep going. Tra- travel is glamorous, always in hindsight, right? They're just like they yeah. say, and every, every bad story turns into uh, the ones you, you tell a lot later on, you know? For every Instagram glamour shot, there's around 2,000 pictures that you really don't want to show to anybody. <laughs> Pretty much, right? <laughs> Most of travel is not like the glamorous alley. It's mostly walking the wrong way down a street and realizing there wasn't anything there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trial and error, my friend. So last, uh, last question for you. So, you know, obviously if you're going to go to every country in the world and then, you know, beyond that, when you look at all the regions, uh, a little hard to kind of always find a reliable travel companion, I assume. Do you, do you prefer traveling solo or, I mean, do you prefer having somebody along with you? Um, the answer is both. And, uh, you know, I've probably done about two thirds of my travel with people and then probably one third, uh, solo. And, I'm very fortunate. I've had five different people um, that I've been to at least 40 countries with over, you know, 20 plus years of travel. And I've never once had an argument or like anything. If you can find people that you can travel with and, you know, that are chill and you can get along with and you guys just kind of realize you both have the same common goal, that's just gold. You know what I mean? Just go with that. But the answer is I would rather travel alone than with somebody who I didn't like to travel with. 
But if I have somebody that I can go with who I know is going to appreciate it and, and be good and contribute and, uh, and everything, 100% of the time, I'd rather be with somebody. Absolutely. Uh, Lee, thanks so much for being here. I just want to acknowledge and thank you. Like yeah, Through you, many people have seen places and cultures they may otherwise have looked at in fear or judgment. And you know, you've done a lot to just show the travel community how accessible and fascinating so much of the world is. So I appreciate thanks, that. Thanks for that. And thanks for also... Actually, Andy, I'll pass it over to you. You have yeah. your go-to joke. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I might not even tell my joke. Who knows? We're going to keep it fresh for everybody at home. I mean, what, one thing, I guess, you know, Lee and everybody who's here watching that, that I'll say quickly is, just like about this whole travel from home movement, you know, this is all put together by volunteers from our community. And, and what we're trying to do is figure out how do we spread joy and inspiration and fun and entertainment and connection and all the things we love about travel when we're all kind of stuck within our own four walls. And just like the thank you to you is just that, you know, just being able to hear you talk for an hour, let everybody leave their home for an hour. Um, and we need that. So like immensely from all of us, like, thank you very much. Um, and we, we appreciate it. It's uh, I was fucking laughing my ass up on mute. Um, there's uh, there's some good stories there. And I, I do hope you crank out that book because uh, I'll be buying one of the first copies. Um, Thanks man. Appreciate it. And thank you immensely um, to everybody out there Two two more quick things. So one, uh, I sent you an email, but I'm posting a link in the chat right now. Uh, and I want you to copy it because when we close this out, it's going to go away. Uh, Conrad and I are going to host a little after party. Uh, it's Friday at, at least on us Eastern time, 6 PM. Perfect time to, to hang out, start the weekend. Uh, we did this last night, had a great fun meeting people join us. Um, the second thing I'm going to ask everybody to do is, all of our goal with this is to try to find new ways to, again, entertain, connect, inspire. Um, and the way we do that is, frankly, just by listening to all of you and figuring out what else can we do. So I just posted in there a very quick survey. I try to calibrate it to be exactly 90 seconds. Look at that dog. That's, you know, that's, that's going to throw off the entire flow. How can you listen to me? When you're looking at that? Um, uh, fill that out for me really quick. We take it super seriously, and that's what helps our community decide what we're going to do next. Put it back on the dog. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, look at that dog. My God. You know. That's a sleeping French name, Hector, by the way. He says hi to everybody. And uh, I, I keep seeing messages along the bottom. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, you know, feel free to follow me on uh, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. And uh, always feel free to reach out and say hi. And I answer uh, 25 to 30 questions every single night during quarantine at 10 o'clock. And I'm doing Instagram lives every day at 2. Wait, we'll see you on Instagram live. Thank you. Thank I'm you. Thanks, thank you. Stay thanks, safe. Guys. Thank you. And my bad joke, you can be anywhere in your house, but he chose to be here with us. So thank you. Right. Thanks, Have guys. With you, my friend. Bye-bye. See you on the after party. Take care.